everyone. Welcome to War Machine, a podcast for theological nomads. My name is Matt, and in this episode, you'll hear my interview with German theologian Jörg Rieger, who has written, shit, I think like 20-some-odd books at this point. Uh, I also see him popping up in journals all over the place, so uh, very active uh, theologian. He's been doing some really great work around theology and economics. I'm not sure it would be accurate to call him a Marxist theologian, but maybe... He's also the founding director of the Wendland Cook Program in Religion and Justice at Vanderbilt Divinity School. I'll link to that in the show notes, and you should check out the important work going on there. So a few months ago, uh, around the time I was reading Jörg's most recent book, uh, which is called Theology in the Capitalocene, Ecology, Identity, Class, and Solidarity, our friend Trip Fuller was putting together an event in North Carolina called Theology Beer Camp. Uh, which I'm pretty sure I mentioned a couple times here, uh, brought together a bunch of podcasters and speakers, uh, Thomas J. Ord, Peter Enns, uh, Diana Butler-Bass, or a few that come to mind, all very approachable and ended up having some great conversations while I was there. And uh, yeah, I appreciate Trip inviting me. I ended up having a great time and overcoming a lot of uh, social anxiety and uh, just general introversion. <laughs> uh, although I did skip out on the karaoke activities uh, the first night. I just, I, I couldn't work myself up to that. Uh, I'm all for making a fool of myself in public, just not in that particular way for some reason. Uh, anyway, Jörg and I had a crowd of, I don't know, 60 or 75 people and got to speak to him for about 30 minutes before yeah, just opening things up for questions. The questions I've actually cut out and just left his responses in. So that's the second part of the interview you'll hear. Thanks to Trip and Jorg, uh, two fantastic people I'm fortunate to know. And that's it. All right, so here is Jorg Rieger. So welcome to the 2.03 p.m. session with uh, our friend here, Jörg Rieger. I've been saying it wrong for years. I just learned yesterday that it's Rieger, not Rieger. Um, oh, well. So my name is Matt Baker. Uh, I have a podcast called War Machine. I'll spare you the long bio, but uh, I live in New Jersey. I'm 45 years old. I just turned 45. Uh, I have a six-year-old son named Cameron. My wife's name is Monique. And um, yeah, what else do you need to know? Yeah, I've been just doing different podcasts for a few years. Started doing one called The Catacomic Machine. Uh, and then I was doing one for the Westar Institute called Interrupted. So, you know, feel free to check those out if you like. Um, but that's probably all you need to know about me. Normally, I would be like, you want to introduce yourself? But I think they know who you are. I guess so, yeah. yeah. Just uh, remember, York Rieger is how it's pronounced, uh, but, but Rieger, I, I'll listen to that too. So you'll you'll accept it? Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. <laughs> but I actually learned some interesting things. We were just talking uh, out in the hallway, um, some things you might not know about York. His hobbies are, well, first of all, you're a motorcyclist. I don't have a car, so, so I guess that qualifies, yeah. Yeah, you're a motorcyclist. <laughs> that's that's kind of cool. And you are a mountain biker. 
your kayaker. There's something else. I can't remember what it is. Uh, well, skier when I have snow, but yeah, skier. Uh, not, not much snow in Nashville. So. Yeah, and you're from southern Germany. That's right. Yeah. And um, yeah, one of the one of the interesting things that you were saying at one point was how the South in Germany is kind of similar in ways to the South in the States. And so I figured since we're here in the South, do you want to tell us about some of that? Yeah, I could tell you a lot about that. I, I think I said a little bit this morning, uh, you know, the South in Germany, usually there's this North-South, uh, whatever they call it, hiatus, uh, where if you're from the South, you're considered uh, less cultured, a uh, little slower, you know, probably more conservative, uh, simple-minded, uh, that sort of stuff. That, that's been with me all my life. So, so when I meet Germans, uh, I usually talk to them in English because when I talk in my dialect, uh, this, oh, you're from the south. It's <laughs> cute, you know. <laughs> Come on, t you talk like this, you know. And, yeah. uh, and so, um, of course, I can speak high German, so people wouldn't know where I'm from. Mm -hmm. um, but why? So, I, so you're ashamed of where you live? Uh, yeah, no, uh, of course. Uh, that, that's that's how we were raised, you know. That's you're fine. There's a lot of, uh, we've all, we all deal with shame here, you know. We all so, have our ways. So, so these days, uh, keep in mind when I'm going back now, I, I give a lecture. Uh, I can always let my ac accent shine through because, yeah. no, I, I'm somebody I can afford it, but <laughs> <laughs> it's that's it not is. the way we were raised. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, Hegel was from South Germany, right? He was, yes. So uh, actually, cr pretty close to where I grew up, so, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Hey, so, he, so Hegel was a hillbilly, uh, a German hillbilly. <laughs> they, they, they always made fun of his accent, so, yeah. uh, you know, even when he was sort of in northern Germany and, mm -hmm. and all of that, uh, they, they always thought he talked funny. Yeah. So Nietzsche, um, I think in a, a couple places, uh, like really kind of, he's really enamored with North Germany and then like shits on South Germany. And I'm like, I'm, I'm wondering if, if that's just like a, uh, he's throwing shade at Hegel. Uh, uh, probably so. I mean, there, yeah. there, there's a real, I mean, th th these are not just sort of minor quarrels. This is sort of. Oh yeah, real. there were philo philosophical opponents. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and uh, of course, if you think about it, uh, you know, people think Eurocentrism is sort of uh, the big threat. Uh, what Euro it's like Hellenism, uh, Eurocentrism, Hellenism, all these things. This is the ruling class ideology. Uh, there's a lot of people who are not part of that. So, so not all Europeans are necessarily benefiting from the European empire. Sure. Not all Greek people in ancient Greek, Greece were benefiting from whatever uh, you want to call that, you know, the, sort of the Greco-Roman uh, empire. So, so those things are often forgotten. And so what, what the problem is, you miss a lot of the revolutionary forces. You miss a lot of sort of yeah. the undertow of uh, where you could actually organize. Yeah, well, every empire is built on the backs of uh, a disposable class, right? Right? So, speaking of class, you've got this book. You're selling these, right? This is my last copy. This is the last one. So if you want it, you better like rush up here at the end. Oh, you, oh there's yeah, he did. He bought two. Um, but it's called Theology in the Capitalist Ecology, Identity, Class, and Solidarity. It's kind of a mouthful. Um, but I thought maybe it'd be a good place to uh, uh, to start. Maybe like zero in on something in the title there. That word capitalist. Uh, is something that you insist upon using rather than uh, Anthropocene. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I'm sure lots of people here are like familiar with, with you know, what that indicates, but I don't want to assume that. Uh, maybe we can start by like giving us a sense of what those two terms indicate, how they overlap, and how they're, uh, you want to make an important distinction uh, between them in the way you do. So, so who's heard of the capital scene before? I'm just curious. A few, yeah. Uh, not even the majority. So I, I thought it was 
maybe a more common word. Who's heard of the Anthropocene? More people, right? So, so Anthropocene or Anthropocene, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, is uh, this is part of this longer conversation about geological age, you know. You probably know we live in the Holocene, which is sort of the last 10,000 years since the Ice Age. And then there are many, many ages sort of going uh, all the way back uh, 4.5 billion years, I guess. And so uh, people have argued that, you know, at the end of the Ice Age, uh, you know, the planet is now shaped by human activity. So where, you know, you had uh, sort of all kinds of processes shaping not just in human life, but really uh planetary geological changes. Uh, now it is humanity that's changing the planet because there are so many of us, you know, we have a tremendous influence. There's hardly any place in non-human nature that has not been touched by humanity. So that's what the Anthropocene argument is all about. And, and it makes a lot of sense. The Capitalocene argument is saying, though, that if you think about the impact of people on the planet, uh, it's not equal. It's not like 8 billion humans, uh, so if everybody has their little impact and uh, we add it up. Uh, but there's really the powers of big money, the powers of capital that are shaping the planet uh, in a way that's, that's much bigger, much more profound than if you just talk about humanity. And of course, when we're talking about shaping, we're really talking about uh, you know, ecological relationships, but we're also talking about interhuman relationships. And I'm talking about this as a theologian because I'm seeing this sort of stuff also shapes us all the way to the core, including faith, including, you know, your innermost emotions and experiences. We're just not talking about it. So, so it's not uh, trying to negate the other conversations. It's just saying, let's focus a little bit more sharply. Uh, and maybe just one number here. Um, if you're worried about CO2 emissions, as, as you should be, right, uh, that's what's causing uh, global warming. I guess there's broad agreement on that. 71% of CO2 emissions currently are basically produced by the interest of 100 corporations. 71% of CO2 emissions. Uh, so so that's, that's a pretty large percentage, obviously. Uh, but it's just another... Uh, example for why I think talking about the capital scene now is so important. There's a guy, a historian, Jason Moore, uh, who is one of the people who get credited with coming up with the term. So it's not my invention, but uh, mm -hmm. we, we have some interesting conversations. Yeah, nice. It made me think when you were talking, uh, are you familiar with uh, Catherine Yusof's, uh, 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 I think it's like a thousand black anthropocenes or none. So it's like this little like 80 page mm -hmm. treatise. You really kind of uh, I, I haven't read the, the, the treatise, but I, I'm a few Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, you've yeah, got to check yeah. it out. But, I, I keep encountering it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's like, I think it's like nine bucks on Amazon or something. <laughs> so one of the things I, I think uh, happens when we start talking about capitalism is that it becomes like very abstracted, especially in like religious circles, in, in theological discourse, right? This can happen. It almost becomes like we talk about capitalism the way we talk about God um, in the sense that like, we're not really sure what we're talking about, but we know we don't like it, sort of thing. I'm not talking about God, I'm talking about capitalism. <laughs> um, yeah. And then you get all like the uh, discussions about consumerism, and you know, there's a lot of moral hand wringing and, and, and this sort of thing. And one of the things I think is interesting about what I think you're up to is similar to the way that Marx turned Hegel on his head, I feel like you want to turn consumerism on its head in a sense, right? And sort of flip the script and like focus not on consumption, but production as the site of more enlivening ways of generating culture, society, economics, and so on. 
Can you say a little bit more about like what happens when you begin to attend to production as opposed to consumption as something that's like transformative or generative? A couple of things. Uh, thanks for that question. So if you think about capitalism, you know, uh, a couple of years ago I, I was on, on a podcast and, and Tripp and a friend uh, were interviewing me and they started this way. They said, so Rieger, do you have anything nice to say about capitalism? <laughs> oh, let me think about it. Uh, well, uh, seriously, uh, there's sort of, a, a, I think, a pushback. You know, a lot of my students call themselves anti-capitalist. Uh, and, and like you say, it's sort of a vague uh, rejection of, of the dominant system, but what exactly is wrong with it? You know, what, what is not? Yeah, there's no, like, material analysis going on. Th that's just like right. So, so, so uh, the production conversation is really to say at the heart of, of this capitalist system uh, is, is a way, is a relation of production uh, where people put in some work. Uh, I mean, obviously, this is, uh, you know, uh, how do things get done in capitalism in the first place? Uh, essential workers. You need to have workers. You know, we talk about financial capitalism as a money, money is really important. Uh, but even that does not work without actual working people. And so if you think about one of the fundamental problems is related to how production is organized. Uh, and that means, you know, there are workers. And uh, in a capitalist system, uh, of course, as you know, uh, workers are supposed to do certain things. They get paid for it, but somebody else makes the profit. Uh, that's sort of a flow of money that always is not trickle down, is actually trickle up, right? Uh, that, that's the basic structure. And that's just the way it's organized. Whether you like it or not, you look at the overall system. It's not a system that is designed to benefit everybody. Uh, and so having that conversation in the first place, I think, is just a matter of honesty. Uh, and keep in mind, this is not just about money. This is really about power. This is having a voice. This morning, I talked about economic democracy. Um, Capitalism is a system that is not built on this idea of economic democracy. It's actually built on the idea of some people benefiting from, from other people. And of course, that's not just the people relation, that's also the relation to nature. So exploitation and extraction are really related. So in the Wendling Cook program in Religion and Justice, what we're saying is what exploits people is what exploits the planet. So economic and ecological justice are, are closely related. So, so that's sort of the basic analysis. And if you sort of think about it this way, uh, then you can say, well, what, what could we change? Uh, two examples. Uh, normally, people that see the tremendous inequality that capitalism has created and keeps creating, I mean, that's sort of a fact too, right? Uh, they say, well, uh, all we need to do is redistribute the money. Redistribution now becomes the big argument, distribution and redistribution. If you take it back to production, you could say, well, how is the inequality produced in the first place? So uh, if you're concerned about inequality, you know, redistribution is always nice, but what happens <laughs> is after a while, if the system is not fixed, you know, the inequality will keep growing again. So, so production is important there. The other piece about consumerism, uh, I think, is really also important because uh, there's a lot of uh, ecological theology in including uh, one of my predecessors at Vanderbilt, Sally McFake, mm -hmm. uh, talked a lot about consumerism, middle-class people's consumption, and how that's bad for the planet. Uh, well, that's true, but if you think about what is behind consumerism, it's not sort of individual people always wanting more. 
I mean, you can fix that for yourself to some degree, but we have a system that's part of the capitalist machine that is dependent on the consumption of large numbers of people. And so, therefore, uh, consumption is something that's not individually driven. It's actually driven by the need to keep producing, to keep, uh, you know, growing. Growth is sort of yeah. part of the problem here, too. Uh, but what, what you get in the end, then, uh, when you blame consumerism, you're sort of blaming consumers, but you're not blaming... or it's not a matter of blaming, really. It's you're not addressing what is driving consumption, and and once you sort of get to those points, uh, it's again not a question of pointing fingers, but to say, if that's what it is, what do we do differently? So that's that's sort of the basic analysis behind what I'm saying. Yeah, and it's interesting because like that's the point I think where the theological discussion opens up because it's not just about the production of goods, it's about the production of desire which must accompany it. Yes, you, thank you. You look like you're going to say something. No, this Sorry. is this is really uh, thank you for that. So so if you think about what we just said, you know, people usually think, well, it works in finance, it works uh, you know, money economics, politics, but as theologians, I mean, this is sort of the, the other thing, you know, we're, we're looking not just at those questions, we're really looking at how that shapes us all the way to the core. So, so the real question is, how does that shape desire? How does it yeah. shape faith? How does it shape sort of the things that are most dear to you? Uh, and here, you know, to liberate yourself from a conservative stranglehold, I'm all for it, uh, don't get me wrong, uh, but you cannot really just liberate yourself from some old sort of rules that you grew up with and say, well, no, I'm free, uh, because right. uh, who is really running the show is the question. This is not pointing fingers. It's also, once you have this analysis, it's also not pointing fingers at greedy individuals. Uh -huh. So it's not saying, oh, the greedy CEO so-and-so, if they were nicer. No, it's looking at the system. And even the CEOs are part of it. So if you're a CEO of a large company, VW, uh, for instance, you know, to name a German example that's uh, getting bigger and bigger in Tennessee, uh, Chattanooga, if you're not doing what the system wants you to do, uh, somebody else will be CEO. Uh, it's the same for big steeple pastors, by the way. If you're not playing by the rules, uh, it's not like you will be there for long. So, so it's those kinds of structural relationships and what do we do about it. Yeah, and it sort of shifts the conversation from, uh, to a certain degree, right, from the uh, big bad capitalist machine out there to a sort of introspective move, uh, interrogative move, where you're saying, how am I participating in this uh, system, and where, where are the sites of resistance in my own life? And, and so I think I it's a spiritual have, discipline, actually. Exactly. It's, it's a spiritual discipline. And do I have any resources to resist that? Uh, and, and, and not to, to, to fool yourself and say, well, you know, I don't like it, uh, therefore I'm, I'm not part of it. I mean, yeah. we're all part of it. So, so do we have any nice things to say about capitalism? Of course. I mean, we, we benefit from a lot of it, you know. I mean, uh -huh. um, take medicine, you know, uh, take, take other sort of developments uh, that we might take for granted or, you know, uh, the fact that we're... Uh, you know, using technology and all of that, uh, a lot of this comes through capitalist development. And, and the point here is not uh, moralizing about it, but just to say, what options do we have? How do we move forward? Is there a different spirituality? Is there a different way to actually become a desiring human being? That's whether our desires can be more constructive, I want to know. That, that goes all the way down. Uh, and uh, I mean, for me, that's a personal project. You know, it would be a platitude to say, uh, I ride motorcycles for spiritual formation. Um, 
or for therapy purposes, but but in a way I, I do because it, it clear my it clears my mind. Th okay. That's just a little uh, you know technical thing that you can do, and people do different things. Uh, doing yoga, you know, all these things I, I think can be very helpful. Uh, but unless we sort of do this with the, the broader structures in mind, uh, and of course then the question how we as communities can do something. Yeah. Uh, unless that happens, I, I don't think we can move much further. Yeah, what, what do you think the likelihood of that sort of thing is in your estimation? So uh, this goes back to our evangelical heritage. Uh -huh. uh, I mean, you know, what is the likelihood of an awakening? You know, what is the likelihood of, uh, you know, uh, the spirit moving in, in any way that's not predetermined by the dominant system? And, you know, I, I said this morning, I grew up as a Methodist. I still believe that awakening is possible. Uh -huh. I, I still believe uh, that there is ways of, you know, the, the old holiness theology uh, to have not just individuals, but groups and communities do things differently. But, but that's, uh, of course, what we're trying to do with the solidarity circles. So it's not something where anybody can pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. I mean, we know that's not possible economically, uh, but it's also not possible theologically. You know, you cannot just... Uh, read a book and uh, and basically feel like you pull yourself out, which is why for us, uh, we're, I mean, us meaning the Wendling Cook program specifically now at, at Vanderbilt, uh, we started these solidarity circles where we're putting church faith communities, um, right now Christian faith communities were open to interreligious work to, we're at the very beginning of this, mm -hmm. together with uh, embodied solidarity economy projects. Yeah, that's dope. Since we're talking about, uh, we've introduced Christianity into the mix, I mean, uh, people have long been uh, aware of the connections between uh, Christianity and capitalism, like going back at least as far as Weber, right? But, um, and there's like more current work being on it done, probably not enough. Um, but to, to the extent that we can say that there is this symbiotic relationship, this sort of synergistic relationship between capitalism and Christianity, um, we, people have remarked it's a religion, right? It's a religion of labor, it's a religion of profit. And so I'm curious what do we mean to turn that on its head? And you know, rather than a, a religion of labor, what can be generated through the labor of religion? Through theological production? You know, like can we seize the means of theological production? What would that mean? I don't know, I just like the question. Um, yeah, no, that's a good question. And then like, the other thing is, I, I don't know, maybe you can just say something about how you think uh, what the task of theology is in the capitalist scene as opposed to, you know, uh, uh, prior times. Yeah, those, those are a lot. Yeah, I know, I'm sorry. Good, I just kind of jammed it all in there. But think, I mean, let me start with the task of theology. I mean, uh, the way I was raised, I came through the German Academy first, did a master's in Germany, and then my PhD in the U.S. You know, the basic standard definition of theology was always... Uh, critical reflection on on faith, something like that. I mean, the first step, I think, is uh, to turn critical reflection into self-critical reflection. So, so don't just look at what's wrong with other people. Look, look at yourself. Look at how uh, you're part of, of this overall thing that you're that you're dealing with. So, so, so that needs a little bit, not just introspection, but really uh, the analysis that really looks at everything. It gives you like critical distance, so you can kind of like get leverage on it, right? Uh, right. And, and and the analysis I'm talking about is a power analysis. So, so this is not just saying theological ideas. 
but what difference do theological ideas make? So I, I often start theology classes by saying theology is a matter of life and death. Uh, well, really, literally, because theology has killed, has done a lot of deadly stuff. I mean, people got killed uh, because of theology by theologians, all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, of course, uh, having said that, I want to maintain that theology is also life-giving. So, so you have to make those distinctions and you figure out how you're part of the problem. Mm -hmm. But only then can you look at how you're part of the solution. So, so any sort of positive idea that theology will, will help you fix it, uh, unless it has gone through how we're really uh, part of the problem, I, I don't think we'll, we'll come up with a solution. Mm. Uh, add to that this, this notion that uh, you know, theology is not so much individuals talking to each other, but it's a collective enterprise. So, so right. I mean, what I do as a theologian, I mean, in this case, my name is on the book, uh, but the work is really done uh, as I engage not just faith communities, but, but any kinds of communities, I find especially social movements uh, critical. Uh, so this is not just me, my, my taste, and what I like to deal with or not, but my judgment, uh, where is the spirit moving? Uh, and oftentimes, uh, over the ages, uh, the spirit has been moving outside of the churches. I mean, all the way back, it's a Lutheran church, you know, think about the spirit moving in the German peasants. Uh, Luther picked it up at first, and then he backpedaled, you know, uh, mm -hmm, sort of mm -hmm. really turned uh, his back on... on uh, theology of culture. Uh, well, I mean, he had sort of his own theology of culture. I mean, two things about the Reformation here. Mm. One, for Luther, uh, everybody knows that the way the Reformation ultimately uh, saw the light of day, or, I mean, success in Germany was by the dukes and the princes of the various states adopting it or rejecting it. So, so it wasn't really won by preaching. Uh, the other thing that's less known is that uh, at the time uh, of the Reformation, uh, there were big mining operations there in sort of Saxony, the area around Wittenberg and places, uh, where the people operating the mining companies funded the Reformation. So, so there was a sort of <laughs> an economic incentive that, that we're not really clear about. Uh, so what I'm saying about this is uh, theology needs to become aware of, of how it is actually shaped by a lot of forces that we never admit. It's shaped by power, politics, big money. Uh, that's just the way it is. I'm not saying uh, let's complain about this, but let's pay attention and then figure out what are our alternatives. Uh, and, and I think there were alternatives. You know, in the European situation, there was always the left wing of the Reformation, uh, which now turned into the Baptists, uh, which I think have tremendous potential to resist some of the more dominant Reformation politics, uh, except, of course, you know what happened to the Southern Baptists here in the US, right? <laughs> sort of ran right back into the, the big affiliation with money and power. Yeah. So, uh, the task of theology then is to look self-critically at this and uh, not to invent constructive solutions, but to look for what's happening and where is it happening and then to, to sort of work on that. So, so my theology in the end, if I'm telling you do this and that, well, uh, you can decide to do it or not. Uh, what I'm saying, though, is you need to look at where the movement is where you are, uh, where sort of the solidarity is forming. Become part of that, use the theological terms to discern it, uh, and then build networks.
Yeah. So what you were just saying for me had kind of like a, a watchword there and uh, it was relationality, right? Because you're talking about the sort of inextricability between all these sort of spheres of, of human life and society. So we can talk about maybe like a uh, radical uh, intersectionality, right? That extends beyond class, race, and, 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 and these sorts of things. Um, anyway, that's, mm -hmm. I don't know why I went there, but it is interesting when you get down to it that a lot of what we're talking about is about relations and relationality, right? And how, uh, how our relations are formed, mediated, and sustained through the capitalist form of production. Um, and so, I don't know, I mean, I know there's a lot of process folks here who are like probably really invested in conversations about relationality from a more Whiteheadian perspective, uh, more like uh, stridently me metaphysical perspective. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the new materialisms, which I think uh, have been, they've been important for me, um, I really wasn't able to find uh, an authentic spiritual path until I took material seriously. It's kind of a weird paradox or something, but um, yeah, can you say something about the what the new materialisms have to offer to those who are like not happy? Like Trip, Trip is always kind of carrying on about uh, reductive materialism, and you know, rightly so. What does that option look like? Because I don't think that many people. I can't. I know I've tried. I can't go all the way with Whitehead. That's, that'll be a good book title, but yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I mean, uh, let me start somewhere and, yeah. and, and feel free to follow up. Um, I mean, ultimately, you know, uh, if you're a theologian, you want to make big claims. So, so we could say, well, relationship with everything. Everything is relationship. I mean, I put this on the board and everybody will put in their books. And uh, now we're all relational theologians. Uh, for me, the question is, I mean, yes, uh, I, I agree. That's, we are all relational theologians. Relationship is everything. It's just what relationships are we really talking about? So, so it's relationships plus, it's always relationships plus power. So, uh, you know, H. Richard Niebuhr wrote this uh, wonderful book, Christ and Culture. You probably all know about it. Uh, years later, I wrote a book uh, titled Christ and Empire. Uh, and the point of Christ and Empire was to say it's Christ plus culture plus power. So, so culture is a way of talking about uh, relationships, but uh, Niebuhr is, I, I don't think, quite there yet talking about uh, the bigger power structures. Right. Uh, that's one of my questions for Whitehead, too. Uh, are we really uh, looking at the power structures in a way uh, that they're shaping up in a specific historical moment? So, I mean, I, I, I agree with a lot of the metaphysics uh, or uh, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but the question for me that we always have to answer is how are these relationships shaping up in very specific force, force fields? Yeah. And here, back to the capitalist scene, I would say these force fields are... Um, money. Uh, David Harvey uh, years ago wrote uh, an article that was titled, What is Green and Makes the Environment Go Round? <laughs> what is green and makes the environment go round, right? Uh, it's the dollar, right? Uh, so, so a lot of what we're looking at, relationality, in other words, has to be looked at. Uh, and, and of course, uh, the fundamental relationship in capitalism is the labor relationship. Uh -huh. So, so uh, it's not even just a matter of who has property and who doesn't, or who has wealth and who doesn't, but what is your relationship at work? Uh, how much power do you have at work? That's the basis of your class analysis, by the way. It's not stratification theory and any of that. Uh, chapter three in the book, by, by the way. Uh, but, but the relationship here is such that um, you have to see who wins and who loses. Uh, and sometimes that can be organic. Uh, but once money enters 
playing fields, uh, it, it's less and less of that, and more and more of sort of this, this dominant power, which is now, I mean, you want to talk about ontology, I would say uh, a billionaire, a multi-billionaire is ontologically a different being than a non-billionaire. Uh, and, and again, this is not pointing fingers, but this is simply looking at how this relationality is now shaped in a certain direction and what we can do and, and what we cannot do. Uh, and of course, that uh, two more things here. That yeah. includes your relationship to nature, not just to people. Uh, and I think it really includes your relationship to God as well. Uh, because somebody who basically controls so much of human relationship uh, wouldn't be su surprising if that force also controlled our relationship to God, right? Uh, and and therefore, uh, you know, even our imaginary uh, there is shaped by that. So 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 that's the relationality, the new materialism. Uh, maybe just one more comment on that. Uh, I think very helpfully points out how. Material relationships also matter. Matter matters, right? You, you can sort of then look at energy. You can look at all kinds of interesting questions. Um, my take on the new materialism, some of that is also in the book, is uh, I, I once wrote a piece um, in response to religious uh, conversations about new materialism. I wrote, uh, why movements matter most? Movements matter most. Uh, and for some strange reason, the new materialism is not quite getting into the movements, especially when religion is picked up. Uh, and so, or I see the potential of work that needs to be done yet. So, so this is not me doing it all myself, but yeah. could we put Whitehead together with the liberationist perspective? Not additive, but w what happens when this, when, when the perspective Yeah, resonance. Yes, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, that's dope. redemption here? I, I think that's a really good question. By the way, uh, I, I was having uh, lunch with some guys and we were talking about, I mean, how our, uh, my own evangelical heritage and vocabulary can, can really be read in this way, so you don't have to get rid of all these embarrassing terms like conversion, redemption, uh, you know, repentance, uh, and a lot of these, you know, you can actually sort of use them again, but, but now, uh, you know, redemption, I think uh, it has to go through some sort of uh, classical uh, repentance uh, and, and acknowledgement, uh, acknowledgement of your sin sort of thing. So simply trying to fill in the gaps by saying, well, now the person is nice. Uh, well, uh, the more you extract, uh, the more uh, philanthropy you can do. You know, that, that, that is sort of... Uh, part of the problem that has to be pointed out, and of course this is part of the philanthropic, uh, industrial philanthropic uh, machine, you know, uh, that, that also has to be addressed. Uh, but this, this you could take back to the Gospels, you know, I mean, it's uh, Mary's song of praise there, the Magnificat, God who lifts up the lowly, this is what we're talking about, right? Uh, in this relationship, uh, maybe the Whiteheadian mystery is that the lowly do not disappear. I mean, they, they still play a role. They, they still shape history. They also contribute to God. Um, but at the same time, uh, as the lowly are lifted up, the powerful are pushed from their thrones. Uh, and, and that has to happen in some form or fashion. I, I'm not saying it has to be a violent thing, uh, but there has to be some accounting. Uh, and then, of course, Mary ends the talk by talking about the hungry being filled with good things and the rich 
sent away empty. So in this relationality, what, I'm, what I would say is, you know, maybe uh, we, we repair what the damage that has been done by sending the rich away empty once in a while. It could be a good thing. It could actually be cathartic, you know. It could actually be uh, what saves you at the end of the day. Uh, if you're in this camp. So we're really interested in the salvation of everybody, the love for everybody, uh, but there could be tough love. That could mean consequences. And it certainly always implies conversion. By the way, uh, the thing about conversion that I find most attractive uh, these days is what we're learning from, from uh, the worker cooperatives who are talking about conversion these days also, uh, basically converting conventional businesses into cooperatives. And if you look at the process, it, it's fascinating because it pretty much affects everything. The way you think, the way you do your accounting, uh, material relationships, interpersonal relationships, political relationships, economic relationships, implications for faith as well. Uh, but there is a holistic conversion if there ever was one. And I think this is pointing beyond capitalism. It's, this is the end of capitalism I was talking about this morning. I'm not uh, hoping for uh, you know, the whole planet collapsing, but there are real alternatives emerging. Uh, but for that, you know, the capitalist has to go away in a cooperative. Now, the capitalist is not necessarily sent, they're gonna cooperate. Out, uh, sent into the desert. I mean, the oh, I, I get what you're saying. Sorry? No, I thought you... Never mind, go ahead. <laughs> the, the way, uh, sorry, I, I keep talking here. I mean, you have more questions. Uh, but the way the conversion works is, uh, you know, uh, basically now uh, baby boomers retiring, wanting to sell their companies. Only, uh, I think, two out of ten companies ever get sold. So a lot of companies, uh, you know, you get sent into the desert anyway. Uh, but a conversion, um, you know... Uh, the capitalist, the owner of the company, basically sells the company to the employees. So it's not a charitable donation, but uh, you know, person goes out into the sunset, uh, has a nice rest of their lives, but something new emerges in its place. Uh, but there's an accounting here. You cannot continue with business as usual and assume, you know, just by being a little nicer, uh, doing what you've always been doing, it, it will work. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, you put these things together and all of a sudden, you know, you have all kinds of theological uh, conversations uh, that, that, that reclaim almost anything and everything, uh, including uh, <laughs> a trip here last night, right? The penal substitution theory and all of that stuff. Uh, by the way, uh, that's an unsound conversation we can have later, but uh, yeah. I'm, I'm good. Uh, th there was a hand in the back. <laughs> This is really, uh, I want to connect both questions. Uh, and, and starting with yours, you know, uh, what happens with people staying away from work? Um, this morning I used this, this ugly term, class struggle. Uh, and people, you know, when I say class struggle, they think, well, uh, you must be a Marxist because nice people don't use that term. Uh, except that people who actually work for a living uh, know existentially what it means. I mean, you go to the grocery store, you talk to the person stocking the shelves, they may not ever have heard of Marx or read anything, uh, but they know what class struggle feels like. So uh, that's the first thing. Uh, second thing is uh, when we talk about liberation uh, theology, uh, usually we talk 
marginalized talk, we talk minority talk, and then the idea is we somehow have to be more inclusive, more welcoming, more hospitable to a minority. Uh, we somehow have to fight for minority rights. When you talk about working people, we're talking about not the minority. The minority is the ruling class. The, minor the majority is the working class. And, and I know one, one way to define the working class, Michael Zweig did this saying, uh, these are people who work for a living and do not have a lot of power at work. So what defines you is your power at work. And Zweig was saying, um, two thirds of Americans do not have power at work anyways. Uh, one third, uh, myself included, sort of, this is the middle class question now. Uh, we, we do have some power. I have some power, don't get, get me wrong. Uh, but if I really look at it, my power is actually fairly limited also. Uh, and I've been in uh, the academy three decades long enough to see how even academic power uh, of elite university professors is more and more restricted. Uh, so if uh, tomorrow another pandemic happens and a couple of professors are not coming back, I would not be surprised because uh, there is tremendous pressure on people and uh, there's really no freedom. So we live in the freest country in the world uh, and yet for some strange reason we live in all these little dictatorships. Mm -hmm. so, so, so that's what we're finding. Tie that back to the middle class now. Uh, first of all, uh, there is not as much freedom in being in the middle class as people think it is. I mean, even the 25, if you're top 3%, uh, you have a lot of privilege, but you have surprisingly little power. That's another distinction I'm making in the book between privilege and power, where the point is, even me, you know, standing on a soapbox uh, nationally, internationally, um, I have a lot of privilege, uh, but my power is surprisingly limited to change anything, especially if I want to go against the system. Uh, and uh, realizing that, I think, would be one of the great insights for a lot of middle-class churches because we usually think middle-class people run this country. Uh, you know, and then we blame ourselves and people feel bad about themselves and having two cars in the garage and, uh, and all of that uh, and, you know, being these horrible consumers. Uh, while in reality, of course, the country is not run uh, by, by most people owning shares or retirement accounts. The country, the economy is run uh, by the big financial powers. Uh, and, and so if a middle class congregation started to understand that, uh, you know, the typical idea of the middle class is we, we see ourselves, myself included, closer to the ruling class than to everybody else. The reality is we're part of the 99%. And if we realize that, uh, then we could start organizing with the rest of the 99% and making a real difference. By not doing that, uh, Advocacy, I think, is, is one of the examples. We think of ourselves as advocates for the least less fortunate. By becoming advocates, not realizing that what's happening to them is also happening to us. The climate that's changing for them is also changing for us. Uh, the economy that's not working for more and more people is less and less working for us in the middle also. Uh, that's not to say we, we're exactly in the same boat. But there is a solidarity emerging that's much bigger than the moral claims to you must be in solidarity. Simply saying, look at who you're really in solidarity with. Um, Paul said it best, 1 Corinthians 12, body of Christ, if one member suffers, all suffer together with it. So it's now a very different pedagogy for any and every middle class church. Namely, 
see yourself uh, not as above, but as part of the struggles. Figure out what you can contribute. Uh, and in the process, first of all, learn who you really are. Uh, and secondly, as back to theology, maybe learn for the first time who God really is. <laughs> or maybe really is a big word, but uh, who yeah. God is more likely and more probably than what you're worshiping right now. Uh, one of my books, uh, Jesus versus Caesar, was subtitled, For People Tired of Serving the Wrong God. For people tired of serving the wrong God. And I think this is what our middle class churches really need. Uh, by the way, uh, if any of you are interested in the solidarity circles, we're starting another group next fall. So, so it's not happening very soon. Uh, but uh, keep an eye on the Wendland Cook program. That's religionandjustice.org, our website. Uh, and then uh, the Southeast Center for Cooperative Development, uh, that's co-ops now with a hyphen between co and ops, co-opsnow.org. They have a toolkit uh, for uh, faith communities and cooperatives. So if you go on that website, the Wendland Cook program was part of developing that. But uh, that's where I see the hope happening. And, and I think uh, we're actually seeing some success. So, so this is not just another uh, crazy idea by another crazy theologian. All right. Well, you got the Bible verse in. You got the plug in. This is probably a good place to stop, but any last questions? I saw your, your hand go up. What? Walk over there and get a beer while you answer the question so that we make sure we transition for the next one. Why don't we just take this offline? Yeah, yeah. Some people okay. might want to watch this. I don't think <laughs>